boring that was for the love of money by the ojs and today that's because we're talking about uh, an investing product now today's post is a kind that i'm writing more frequently on thursdays it's an investment memo crossed with a sponsored deep dive now i only write sponsored deep dives about companies that i want to invest in and the whole point is to expose you to some of the most exciting and innovative startups out there before anyone else does and now that not boring capital exists i want to put my money where my mouth is wherever possible after going deep with today's team over the past few weeks and learning more about what they're building, I'm pumped. I want to be an investor uh, in their actual product, but I can't yet. So next best thing, I'm going to invest in the company. Anyway, without further ado, let's get to it. Is that a family office in your pocket or are you just a happy equity client? I am but a humble newsletter writer. I don't have the power to command the stars. But my God, have they aligned perfectly for this piece. When I first talked to Tori Reese back in December, he was in the early stages of starting a, new, starting a new company. Since then, he and the company's all-star team of co-founders raised a little money, went into the lab, and built. In June, he reached back out to tell me that it was almost ready and asked if I could help explain what they were doing. I said yes. We picked a date, July 29th. That's today. We had no way of knowing then that today was going to be Robinhood's first day of trading as a public company. Nor do we know that Titan was going to announce a $58 million A16Z-led Series B, valuing the company at $450 million last week. And even with all the world's crystal balls at our disposal, we could never have guessed that a tweet about capital allocators, of all things, was going to take Twitter by storm. And the tweet was from Joel Cohen at MIT, who said, We've received over 1,800 cold emails in the last year from emerging managers. We passed immediately on more than 95%. If we can't see any reason from the initial materials to believe someone could generate among the best long-term sustainable track records of their generation, we pass. Those three events are relevant because Equi is a bit of a combination of the three, with a little extra sauce on top. Like Robinhood, Equi is making it easier to access the financial markets. Like Titan, Equi is essentially a hedge fund in the back with a tech interface in the front. Like that poor capital allocator everyone dunked on, a large part of Equi's strategy is identifying and investing with the world's best fund managers. Equi takes a piece from all three and combines them into something better, a tech-powered family office in your pocket. Note, when I use the term Equi throughout the piece, I'm referring to both Equi's investment advisor and Equi's tech platform, which are two separate entities with different functions, but y'all don't want to listen to the version that calls them different things throughout, so just know it. Here's the thing. The way that institutional investors and ultra-high net worth individuals, the ultra-high net worth or the 0.00001% invest is very different from the way that you or I invest, even if you are a high net worth or 1% individual. And it's certainly not because the institutions don't have the ability to invest in the way that retail investors do. They have a broader universe of options available to them than we do, and they mix and match those options into portfolios with better risk-adjusted returns. The biggest difference between how they invest and how we invest? Alternative investments. Institutions and ultra-high net worth individuals, who often invest out of their own family offices, have on average roughly 50% of their portfolios in alternative investments like hedge funds, private credit, volatility, private real estate, crypto-backed lending, and more. Even high net worth investors have closer to 6% on average in alternatives. That creates an enormous disparity in returns over the long term. 
the average high net worth investor has generated annualized returns of 2.5 to 5.4% over the past 20 years. The average ultra high net worth investor has averaged 8.8 to 12.4% returns over the same period. That's because diversifying with alternatives can increase returns and decrease volatility in a portfolio, which makes a big impact on how a portfolio grows. Throw compounding into the mix and the difference becomes enormous. After 20 years, $100,000 invested becomes $217,000 for the high net worth investor and $750,000 for the ultra high net worth investor. The gap widens practically on its own. Before you get too envious, here's another thing to know. A lot of the institutions aren't actually that great at allocating. They have access to alternative investments, but their process is often incredibly manual. They know a guy who knows a guy who runs a fund. References check out. Performance has been pretty good. If, per the tweet, MIT only allocates to the top 5%, they're ahead of the curve. Definitionally, some institutions are allocating to the bottom 95%. Even most of the institutions allocating to the top 5% aren't quantitatively structuring a portfolio of non-correlated managers. A small handful of alt-focused funds of funds do this, but they're nearly impossible to access and manage the money of a few ultra-rich clients. Equity's value proposition is simple. It's taking the best of the family office model, improving it by making data-driven investment decisions, and offering it to, for now, high net worth people. Equity combines tech with smart humans to build the modern family office, like if Betterment and a top-tier quant alt-focused fund of funds had a baby. And you should go to the piece at notboring.co because there's a picture of a very cute baby in there. Now, although this is a sponsored deep dive, it's not really meant to sell you on equity specifically. For now, regulatory and administrative reasons, the company's investment arm can only let in 300 accredited investors. And their average investor is investing over $1.2 million on the platform. Although if it does sound like something that you might be interested in, you can apply at a link in the post at notboring.co, fill in notboring as a referral source, and I'll badger the team to let you in. For perspective, to mimic a portfolio like the one they've assembled, you would actually need well over $90 million. Long-term, they aim to drive minimums lower so the investments can become accessible to everyone. When I asked Equi's co-founders their dream outcome for the piece, no one said more customers. Their answers were consistent. Tori said, I want to decomplexify the layers of what we're doing and make the concepts more digestible to people beyond our co-founders. Finance does a good job at making things overly complex when they're not. There's a lot of great work being done to help people at the bottom of the financial ladder, and our educational content and philanthropic work will target that demographic as well, but what we're building can help prevent the hollowing out of the middle class. Jeremy Smith, the CRO, said, if we get to the person in each friend group who all the friends go to for finance advice and up-level their knowledge on alternative investing, that's a win. And Itai said, and he's the CIO, accredited investors are one in 10 households in America, and they don't think they have options because they typically don't. I want them to understand why family office style investing makes sense for them. So this piece will be about equity, of course, but it's also about a topic about which I've been banging the drum for nearly as long as I've been writing this newsletter. Diversification across uncorrelated assets creates better risk-adjusted returns. Whether or not you invest through the equity platform, you should be thinking about adding uncorrelated assets to your portfolio. In a bulk, YOLO trading on Robinhood has worked stunningly well. To deliver returns that compound over decades, you may need a slightly more sophisticated approach. Today, we'll cover that and more. We'll talk about rebuilding a modern portfolio, meet equi, how equi invests, and democratizing access to the private markets. A lot of what makes equi tick under the hood is complex. I couldn't build a portfolio that equi offers. But the ideas it's based on are pretty straightforward. It starts with understanding why the traditional portfolio structure no longer works. 
rebuilding a modern portfolio. Quick, what's the best way to structure your investment portfolio? For the past few decades, the answer has been easy, the 60-40 portfolio. Put 60% in equities, 40% in bonds, and call it a day. That approach is easy to understand. 60% of your money should appreciate and grow, and 40 should generate income. Buy some index funds, buy some treasuries, call it a day. It's also, unfortunately, the wrong approach today. Why? There are a few reasons. One, interest rates are super low. Two, there's alpha in the private markets if you pick the right managers and strategies. And three, it's easier than ever to access alternatives to build a non-correlated portfolio. Let's take each in turn. Interest rates are historically low. If you've been reading up worrying or watching the markets or even turned on the news at some point over the past year, this one should not come as a surprise to you. Interest rates are historically low, which has driven up the price of growth assets and forced investors to look for returns in riskier assets. For most of the recent history, investing in treasuries was essentially free money. On the day I was born in 1987, the 10-year treasury yield, referred to as the risk-free rate because of the infinitesimally small chance that the U.S. defaults on its debts, was 7.17%. Inflation that year averaged 4.43%. That means that you could invest with practically no risk and have money with 2.74% more buying power the next year. Now, I put a chart in the graph of the historical 10-year treasury yield versus inflation. And you should go check it out at notboring.co. But 10-year treasury yield is a blue line. Inflation is a red line. Anytime the blue line was higher than the red line, you could park your money in bonds and outpace inflation. It wasn't sexy, and you weren't going to outperform anyone by doing it, but money's money. Since the financial crisis in 2009, that's mostly flipped. Today, the risk-free rate is at 1.29%, while inflation is at 4.31%. Based on the consumer price index and whether that's actually capturing uh, real inflation is another conversation. But that means that if you invest in 10-year treasuries, your money buys 3% less every year. Oaktree's Howard Marks wrote an excellent memo on this topic back in October titled, Coming Into Focus. If you want to go deep, you should read the whole thing, and I link to it in the piece. The takeaway is that lower interest rates have dramatic impact on every part of the market. When the risk-free rate is lower, returns on all other asset classes come down too. To generate the same returns you're used to at a, much, at a higher risk-free rate, you need to take on more risk. This is one of the reasons so much money has flowed into growth equities and venture capital since the Fed lowered rates in response to COVID. Long story short, bonds should not be 40% of your portfolio unless you have a strong thesis for why they should be. Two, there's alpha in the private markets if you pick the right manager and strategies. The difference between the 25th and 70th percentile managers in, a, in funds focused on traditional publicly available assets like US fixed income or US large cap equities is tiny. You're probably better off avoiding paying the fees and just buying an index. But, and this is one of the tropes that Tory wants to kill, that doesn't mean that all hedge funds underperform the market after they take their fees. That's become a popular narrative, and when you look at, at it in the aggregate, it looks true. But there's a huge variance in performance between top and bottom managers and private alternative assets like venture capital, real estate, growth equity, private equity, private credit, and more. That means that you should be able to generate above average risk-adjusted returns if you can pick and allocate to the best managers across a diversified portfolio of non-correlative strategies. And three, it's easier than ever to access alternatives and build a non-correlated portfolio. Now, all this makes sense on paper. The challenge is, until very recently, it was exceedingly difficult for a regular person to even access alternative investments. Top-performing funds require minimum investments of uh, 1 million or more, and often much higher, and that's just for one fund. If you want to diversify across strategies, that would run you into the tens of millions of dollars. That's changed. As I wrote about in Software is Eating the Markets, new platforms give mostly accredited investors access to alternative investments. 
Platforms like Fundrise and Cadre let people invest in real estate projects. Masterworks lets us invest in world-class art. Rally and Alt give people access to fractions of rare collectibles like the Declaration of Independence. And Titan is a mutual fund for a new generation, like a long-only hedge fund behind a tech-first interface and a portfolio-related educational content. Regular people can also invest in startups much more easily than we could in the past, both directly and via funds, driven by companies like Angelist, Republic, which is a portfolio company, Syndicate, which is a portfolio company, and Party Round, which is also a portfolio company. Do you see a theme? Alto IRA will, will even let you invest in most of the platforms with your self-directed IRA. All to say, not only does 60% equities, 40% bonds no longer make sense, we no longer need to settle for the mix. There are better alternatives. That doesn't mean that a balanced portfolio no longer makes sense. Quite the contrary. 60-40 or 50-50 or some permutation based on your goals certainly makes sense. This is not a call for you to ape into the riskiest stuff you can find. The trick is figuring out what goes into the 60% appreciation bucket and what goes into the 40% income bucket. A good guidepost is how people allocate when it's their job to do so, and they have access to the entire universe of potential options. In August 2020, in a report for Morgan Stanley titled Public to Private Equity in the United States, Michael Mobison highlighted the shift in the way the government pensions and university endowments allocate their money over the past three decades. You should check out the graph at the post in NotBoring.co, but it shows that fixed income and cash are becoming a much smaller percentage of the allocation since 1990. Public equities are remaining about the same and getting a little bit smaller, and alternative assets are booming. For endowments, up to 50% of their money is invested in alternative assets. Since 1990, both government pensions and university endowments have moved away from something like the traditional 60-40 portfolio to include a much bigger allocation to alternatives. University endowments, which can be more nimble, have moved to 50% alternative assets and stayed there for the past decade. That makes sense. The late David Swenson created the endowment model, which shifted endowment portfolios more heavily into illiquid private investments while running the Yale Endowment. Mobison cited two main reasons that alternatives are attractive. One, high returns. As KKR highlighted, the best managers can offer above-market returns, plus there's a premium for holding illiquid assets. And two, diversification. Alternatives can provide diversification benefits if they offer low correlation to other assets in the portfolio, i.e. if a credit fund's performance has little to nothing to do with how the S&P 500 is performing, for example. That last piece is incredibly important, and one that I've highlighted a few times and not boring. In fact, I'll just rewrite what I wrote in my piece on Fundrise. Today, retail investors have access to a larger universe of options than we did before, and investing in uncorrelated assets creates better risk-adjusted returns than investing only in stocks. In his seminal paper on the topic, Engineering Targeted Risks and Returns, Bridgewater CEO Ray Dalio wrote about his hedge fund's postmodern portfolio theory approach, an evolution of the Yale Endowment's modern portfolio theory. He describes different approaches to get to a target 10% annual return. In the traditional approach, an investor needs to put most of his or her portfolio on equities, which typically generate higher returns than cash, bonds, or real estate, but at a higher level of risk. Being so heavily concentrated in one high-risk asset class is a riskier way to generate returns than he's comfortable with, so he recommends another approach that boils down to a few ideas. One, you can generate a similar risk-return profile to equities by using leverage in other asset classes. Two, and this is important, diversification into uncorrelated assets both of asset classes, beta, and the managers who invest in those asset classes, alpha, produces better risk-adjusted returns than high concentration. And by leveraging non-equity asset classes to the same risk-return level and diversifying across more uncorrelated asset classes and managers, you can hit your 10% target with lower risk. For our purposes, the specifics are less important than understanding this key concept. 
Allocating money across a diversified portfolio has historically generated better risk-adjusted returns than concentrating in just stocks, bonds, or even the traditional 60-40 split. Now, I'm the last person who would ever say that you should 100% optimize your portfolio for long-term returns. In Software is Eating the Markets, I wrote that retail investors are buying a lot more than just returns when they invest. They're buying social status, entertainment, education, and a digital asset. Now, by all means, buy Tesla because you love Elon's mission and you think he'll continue to prove the shorts wrong. What's the point of any of this if it's not fun? But professional investors are increasingly shifting their allocation mix to alternatives, and you should have the opportunity to do the same with a portion of your portfolio. Until recently, though, building a portfolio like a top-end family office would have been out of reach for even accredited investors. That's why Equi was born. Meet Equi. Many of the best companies are created because their founders had a problem, couldn't find a solution, and had to build it themselves. Equi was born out of its founder's champagne problem. Now, all four of Equi's co-founders have done really well for themselves. Tori launched the first USD-backed stablecoin, TrueUSD, an AI-enabled debt refinancing platform, and was on the founding team at Lob. Jeremy co-founded Spot Hero, led BD at Zeus, and sold another venture to Coinbase. Itai advised ultra-high net worth clients at UBS, sent at his own advisory shop, and ran a quant hedge fund from which he cashed out after making the trade of a lifetime during Balmageddon in 2018. And Romal Verma was a well-compensated FANG engineer at Facebook and Google, and also co-founded two companies of his own. This is not the story about some scrappy founders eating ramen in their parents' basement. It's about four guys who, in their 30s, were already rich and wanted to not only safely grow their own portfolios, but help others do the same. They were also knowledgeable. They knew how they should be investing. Itai worked with ultra-high net worth clients every day and ran its own hedge fund. Tori had been running financial literacy classes for eight years. Jeremy had, invested, had been investing in private real estate as a cross between a hobby and a profession for years. The problem was they didn't have access to those investments because individually they weren't appealing enough for an interesting manager to care, let alone plop down the $1.5 million required per fund across enough non-correlated funds to build the portfolio they wanted. So last year, they started talking about how to build the ideal alternative portfolio. Atai figured out what to do on the fund and fund side, Jeremy figured out a value-add real estate strategy that could create both appreciation and income, and Tori figured out how to structure a tech platform that could scale. They started running the models, and they realized that it would be possible to generate above-market returns at below-market risk. The easy path would have been just to start a fund of funds, or a hedge fund, and take institutional money to run the strategy for themselves. But they also realized that they wanted to build something big that would help a lot more people invest like the best. So they're working on the legal and regulatory framework, setting up as a registered investment advisor or an RIA, and working with lawyers to figure out a novel fund of fund structure that would allow them to scale to thousands of accredited investors with hopes to scale far beyond that eventually. So this many customers would be impossible for a traditional fund, but for a technology company, it's a cakewalk. Although it was born out of a champagne problem, the Equity co-founders built the product to solve a very real problem, the hollowing out of the American middle class. We all come from humble middle-class upbringings from across the world, Jeremy told me. It's hard to see that we've been able to get to the next level, but that those opportunities are not the same for the next generation. While the initial version of the product seems like it serves a champagne need, it's actually directed at another group of people who are worth millions but don't have great options. Retiring Americans who have spent their entire careers saving but find themselves holding portfolios that are predominantly in bonds in order to generate retirement income. That means they're losing buying power right when they stop earning an income. For sure, Equi has billionaires on the platform, three to be exact. But it also serves Atai's aunt and Tori's mom, who worked in the public school system for 30 years and had half her portfolio in muni bonds earning 1.6%. The fact that Equi can serve both billionaires and Tori's mom with the same product is a pretty unique thing. 
It all comes back to Equi's mission, to create generational wealth for as many people as possible. They realized that doing so would require a combination of tech and humans. Rebel joined to build out the tech side, both the back-end tools to make and manage investments and investors, and the front-end application that will give people a family office in their pocket. Equi isn't claiming to have developed something totally novel. There are leading fund of funds who employ similar strategies. What makes Equi special is that they're opening up access to this type of investing to non-ultra-high net worth investors and educating even non-clients on better ways to invest their money. Which begs the question, how does Equi invest? How Equi invests. You need to talk to a tie. He's a genius. I heard that same phrase from both Tori and Jeremy when I spoke to them. Then I talked to a tie. He's as good as advertised. He started off our conversation with two hindsight obvious but important observations. One, every investment in the world relies on either appreciation or income. Real estate is a hybrid. It has a bit of both. And two, in the 21st century, allocators still don't use data to source the best alternative managers. To Italian the equity team, there's nothing wrong with the 60-40 split. The magic is in what makes up the 60 and what makes up the 40. It's about investing in a diversified, non-correlated portfolios of assets and fund managers to push out the efficient frontier. That, in turn, is about which strategies make up the appreciation portfolio and which make up the income portfolio, and as importantly, who's running those strategies. Which brings me to the second thing Atai points out, which I hinted at before. The way that institutions and family offices source the managers in whom they invest is still pretty manual. When he started researching how to build the portfolio for Equi, Atai sought out every CIO he could talk to, and he came away unimpressed. The way that 95% of the CIOs I spoke to diligence managers is primarily a relationship game, he told me. Either they get introduced by their prime broker or someone they know at another endowment said they were good and then they have lunch, get along, double check the track record, and invest. That's fucking crazy because as KKR, Mabison, and Marks all pointed out, manager selection is the alpha in the private markets. You generate outsized returns by picking the right people to back. The way Equi does that is to divide managers up into asset classes, find the best in class in each category, and then build a portfolio of managers that are uncorrelated to each other and to the broader market. To replace the 40% fixed income piece of the traditional portfolio, they look at managers in categories like private credit and actually build out their own value-added real estate and crypto-backed lending funds in-house. Itai is responsible for replacing the 60% equities piece in the traditional portfolio. To do that, he looks for managers doing managed futures, volatility, and a dozen other hedge fund strategies. To cover their ass in case everything explodes, they look for crisis alpha managers, people like Michael Burry from The Big Short, who buy deeply out-of-the-money puts or cheap insurance policies that pay off extremely well when things occasionally fall apart. To identify those managers, Itai has a database of databases. Since none of the existing providers were comprehensive enough, the Equi team pulls data from over eight different databases, including their own proprietary data. This gives Itai a list of over 10,000 funds across the world and as much performance data as he can scrape together on them. He filters that list for a few things, including a track record over 100 months long to, per, to prove staying power, assets under management or AUM between 200 million and 500 million because he's found that larger funds than that don't perform as well and smaller ones have a higher likelihood of going out of business, and other measures of return per unit of risk so they can minimize the risk included in the portfolio. By taking the data-driven approach, Itai can find incredible managers most allocators had never even heard of. As he put it, there are a lot of nerds out there who just aren't good at raising money, clipping 20% per year. One of the best funds in the world by returns asked Itai how he even found him. No one else had come knocking. To test the power of the database, I asked Itai to show me the fund with the best Sharpe ratio, used to measure the risk-adjusted return, in the world. He showed me the numbers in his dashboard and then told me the backstory from memory. 
FYI, it's a tiny fund in a tiny European country with an unheard of Sharpe ratio of 5.83 that generates 18% annual returns with 3% volatility. Equi couldn't unfortunately get in because the strategy only works up to $100 million. So Itai identified top managers across different asset classes and strategies using their database of databases. He found 12 that balanced each other perfectly. Just like you or I might try to build a portfolio of uncorrelated assets, stocks or bonds or startups or pieces of art, he can build a portfolio of uncorrelated managers, each of whom have their own portfolios. Some funds might have higher expected returns and higher expected volatility. Some funds might have lower expected returns and lower volatility. One, the Crisis Alpha Fund had both lower expected returns and higher volatility than the S&P 500. It stood out like a sore thumb on the chart, and Itai explained that it was there to hedge the entire portfolio against catastrophic downside risks. Then he went into sell mode. Most of the best performing funds don't need to actively market themselves or even take new money. For one fund, a Danish mortgage arb fund with a stellar track record, it took Itai five months of cold calling and emailing to get a meeting. The fund manager told him they were closed to outside investment. Itai somehow convinced him to let Equi invest $100 million. Plus, somehow, Equi has been able to negotiate lower fees with these funds, who like the idea of giving the benefits of their strategies to more people while only having to deal with one investor on the cap table. The end result is that they have come up with a strategy that should push out the efficient frontier. If you are an econ or finance major, this concept should be familiar. The efficient frontier is a set of portfolios that provide the best returns for a defined level of risk or the lowest risk for an expected return. The goal is to get the highest expected return for the lowest risk. He did a pretty damn good job. Itai has constructed a set of portfolios that gives him a targeted return of 17% with less than 4% volatility and a low correlation of 0.16 with the S&P 500. That's world class. Equally importantly, low volatility means lower likelihood of blowing up, no matter what the market conditions. It also means a much smoother compounding of an investment portfolio. Itai showed me a stress test he ran over the worst market environment since 2008, and the max drawdown was tiny. In the worst periods of the past 13 years, when the S&P 500 lost as much as 16.9%, the most equity strategies would have lost was 0.31%, according to these hypothetical projections. It's only lost money once in the 10 periods tested. Again, backtests are not perfect predictors of the future. They don't account for future market risk or fully capture fees and transaction costs, but it demonstrates the power of a diversified, non-correlated strategy in protecting the downside and powering compounding. Here's another thing that sounds obvious, but isn't. Avoiding losses is key to compounding. If you lose 50% of your money at some point, that stops compounding in its tracks. A 50% loss means that you need to double your money to get back to where you were and start compounding again. After the great crash of 1929, it took the market until 1954 to get back to its pre-crash levels. Compounding is the name of the game for equity. Based on their projections, understanding again that past performance is not a guarantee of future results, the portfolio Itai and team have constructed, green and light green lines in the graph in the post at NotBoring.co, would have dramatically outperformed the S&P 500 and a Barclay Hedge fixed income index. You should really just go check out the chart, it's wild to see. The difference between the two green equi lines is that one is equally weighted, one twelfth allocation to each fund, while the other balances them based on Itai's efficient frontier weightings. That weighting caused 100 bips of outperformance and speaks to the importance of not just picking the right managers, but constructing an optimally weighted portfolio of managers. This is complex stuff, and it's just a hypothetical illustration. Most institutional investors can't or don't do it, but it's worth it, and it gets more worth it over time. The equity investment team strategy has crushed the indices, and that recent uptick isn't due to much better recent performance. It's just what a chart looks like when things keep compounding. It's exponential. Meanwhile, the equity team realized that some things are better done in-house. 
For example, as part of the strategy that replaces the 40% income piece, Jeremy leads an in-house real estate team. They go out into the field, backed by data, to identify and purchase multifamily properties, and that's what real estate world calls apartment buildings. They run a value-add strategy, which means that they'll buy assets that need work, hire contractors to renovate, and then rent out the units at a higher price than they could have before the work. Multifamily real estate is an important piece of the portfolio for a few reasons. One, it's tax efficient. The tax code allows for depreciation and cost segregation, which means the cash flows investors receive are heavily tax advantage. They're able to get leverage. A robust lending industry means that equity can lever up its equity to purchase investments like you would when buying a home while keeping a safe enough monthly cash flow to amply cover the loan. And they can run value-add strategies. By doing heavy renovation and repositioning, value-add investors can often generate outsized returns both on the income and depreciation sides, and it's an inflation hedge. I had never thought of it this way, but Jeremy made a really good point when we spoke. Because leases roll over every 12 months, multifamily rental income is a great inflation hedge. If inflation rises dramatically and wages rise, landlords can increase rents annually to reflect the new reality. On the income side, Equi also plans to manage private credit investments and a market-neutral digital assets fund, private credit. Thanks to Dodd-Frank, banks have restrictions on who they can and can't lend to. They might not be able to give inventory loans or motorcycle loans or to factor accounts receivable. The banking system was made for a world in which everyone is a 9-to-5 W-2 worker, which is becoming less true by the day, providing endless opportunities for alternative lenders who are willing to give loans to, say, a self-employed newsletter writer like me. And two, a market-neutral digital asset fund. Equi recently brought on Udav Marwaha, a former BP energy trader who has spent a lot of time in DeFi, to build its market-neutral digital assets fund. To see Udav in action, watch him talk DeFi at minute 17 in Equi's May financial market analysis session, which I've linked to in the post. There's a video on YouTube. The Equi team wrote that Udav, quote, agrees that market-neutral ARBs available in DeFi today are some of the most attractive in the world. The strategy is similar to the ones that I wrote about in the piece on BlockFi. Jeremy and his team have their sights set on any asset that produces good cash flows. Private equity, which buys boring cash flowing businesses, seems like a natural extension. The last piece of the equity puzzle is the app, which is launching in the coming weeks. In the beta, investors will be able to set their allocations across Equi's three strategies, balanced, growth, and income-oriented. Balance and income are designed to generate more income for holders. Growth is focused on appreciation. Real estate is a separate fund because for now, it has a longer lockup period due to the illiquidity of the investments. Even among the diversified and non-correlated strategies, investors will be able to diversify even further by investing in a combination based on their own needs and goals. The end result is that, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, investors will be able to access a portfolio that has previously been available to only those with $100 million or more in the bank. In future versions of the app, investors should be able to gain even more fine-grained control over the investment strategies they include in their portfolios and how they want to balance between growth and income to match their risk preferences. Democratizing access to the private markets. I've avoided using the word democratization up until this point. Democratization in this case is relative. Not everyone will be able to invest in equity for a long time, not until the SEC loosens accredited investors' restrictions at the very least. But over the next couple of years, equity is embarking on a journey to gradually democratize the investing strategies previously available to only ultra-high net worth investors. That plan has five stages. One, in the MVP, the investment minimum was $1 million and limited to only a few dozen early customers. Two. For the beta of the tech platform, equity is limiting investment to a group of 300 people with a minimum check size that's in the hundreds of thousands. This is the beta test, and all of the company's co-founders are participating themselves by putting at least 80% of their liquid net worth into equity strategies. 
In the next wave, they'll let in a thousand more investors. In phase three, thanks to the novel fund to fund structure I mentioned earlier, Equi plans to scale to thousands of accredited investors, hopefully lowering the minimum even further. They also plan to expand the technology platform to offer lines of credit against investors' alternative investments and a spending product. In phase four, Equi plans to launch an advisor platform that helps financial advisors offer alternatives to their clients. And five, in the masterstroke, Equi hopes to register public funds that can scale to tens of thousands of investors, retail and accredited, at much lower 10 to 15K minimums. If the Equi team could offer this to everyone today, they would. They're going through the complexity of dealing with smaller checks in the first place because they want to bring a superior style of investment out of the institutions to the people. But it's going to take some time. There are regulatory hurdles to overcome. Figuring out how to let people withdraw money when Equi's funds are invested in other funds with their own lockup periods and restrictions is a non-trivial technical administrative challenge. They'll need to figure out how to scale their investments across more managers and in-house strategies while maintaining or improving the current efficient frontier. All of this takes time and work, but truly democratizing access to alternative investments is Equi's North Star. For now, Equi's early traction has been phenomenal. The company has spent $0 on marketing, I guess until this post, and they've already received 136 million of inbound AUM interests. People are hungry for products like this, including some incredibly sophisticated investors who've already committed to invest in the platform. Instead of spending on paid acquisition, the company is focused on education. Its YouTube channel is chock full of entertaining educational content, and Itai is sharing unbelievably value content on on Equi's open market calls. They give a glimpse into the side of the market that most people never get to see. As someone who's obviously a fan of the content plus investing approach, I'm really impressed by how Equi's built a following among sophisticated investors. The next step is launching the tech platform, which Equi plans to do in August. In the beginning, the app will help clients onboard, understand how Equi might fit into their portfolio, learn about the asset classes supported on the platform, and personalize their investments to match their goals. Soon, the product might provide more granular portfolio customizability. Over time, the Equi platform might power borrowing, spending, automated client servicing and investing, and liquidity for illiquid investments. In other words, many of the things that investors would get if they had $100 million plus and a family office, and more, without needing to talk to a human right in their pocket. Again, this post is not a call to go invest all your money through the Equi platform. Even institutions and family offices allocate only about 50% to alternatives, and Equi is best thought of as a way to add more alternative investments to your portfolio. Personally, and this is definitely not investment advice, if I had enough cash lying around to invest in Equi, I would probably do something like 40% in equities, a mix of discretionary and systematic via Composer, of course, 15% in crypto, 15% venture, and 30% to alternatives via Equi. For me, investing is about fun, competition, and learning as much as it is about generating the best possible returns. So I'd have about half safely in Composer for the equity side and Equi for the alternative side and take a more hands-on risk with the rest. The beauty of equity is that, for the first time, accredited investors have access to invest the way that institutions do and the ability to choose from the full universe of options. There's no dogma. The best new investing products will give normal people more arrows in their quiver and the agency to shoot those arrows, arrows however they decide. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. And if you want to apply to join the Equi Beta, you can go check out the link in the post at notboring.co. Enjoy the weekend.
Thank you.